Hello and welcome to this installment of AZ Law. I'm your volunteer reader and Phoenix attorney, Paul Wyke, and we explore Arizona's legal and judicial systems in this new program. AZ Law came about to provide Arizona legal news for Sun Sounds of Arizona listeners, the nonprofit reading service for people with disabilities which make it difficult for them to read or hold printed materials. It is broadcast the third Saturday of each month at 11 a.m. on Sun Sounds, and other installments are available on demand on the Sun Sounds website. Our ArizonaLaw.org website is independent of Sun Sounds, but its primary focus is to support Sun Sounds. And I should add that Sun Sounds is a service of the Rio Salado Community College, along with KJZZ and KBAQ radio stations. Our website has links to those stations and information on how you can become a member of them. We urge you to do so now. And you can go there at ArizonasLaw.org. Easy Law, I should say, is now available for download at that website, as well as on iTunes Podcasts, Google Play Music and Podcasts, Spotify, and on Podbean. Well, let's get to the news now. Our first article is from the Arizona Republic from last week. It's reported by Lauren Castle. The headline is Former Planned Parenthood Arizona Employee Awarded $3 Million Over Wrongful Termination. Here's the article. A Maricopa County jury awarded a former Planned Parenthood Arizona employee $3 million after she claimed she was wrongfully terminated when she alerted supervisors to unsafe medical practices. Myra Rodriguez in her lawsuit alleged she was fired after being falsely accused of having narcotics inside her desk. She said the allegation came after she made a series of complaints, including that one doctor's abortion patients experienced an unusual number of complications. Rodriguez's attorney, Tim Casey, told the Arizona Republic that the jury found Rodriguez was doing her job by reporting her concerns. It vindicated what she found, and it ought to help our community be safer, Casey said. Planned Parenthood Arizona President Brian Howard said the organization was disappointed in the case's outcome. We believe the evidence was compelling that it was our former employees' failure to follow organization rules and procedures, which are designed to protect both patients and the public, that led to her dismissal, Howard said in a statement. His statement goes on, the amount of damages awarded runs strongly contrary to the manifest weight of the evidence. Rodriguez is now involved with And Then There Were None, a nonprofit that helps abortion workers leave the industry, according to news release from the group. Rodriguez was fired from Planned Parenthood Arizona in 2017 after working for clinics across the state for more than 15 years. At the time, she was an administrator for the Glendale and the North, Northeast Phoenix locations. About two months before she was fired, Rodriguez made several complaints against doctors and questioned business practices. In August of that year, according to her lawsuit, Rodriguez noticed a trend of reports concerning patients who had complications after abortion procedures and experienced bleeding and cramps. She noticed the patients were treated by the same doctor. Ms. Rodriguez was concerned about the substantial health, welfare, and safety risks to these patients, as well as the substantial risk to the health, safety, and welfare of the inevitable future of PPA patients, the lawsuit stated. According to court records, Rodriguez did not report her concern to the doctor's immediate supervisor because the supervisor was friends with the doctor. 
Rodriguez reported her concerns to a lead clinician and was told upper management was aware of the doctor's actions and her concerns would be addressed, according to the lawsuit. During another occasion, Rodriguez claimed in the lawsuit that she was approached by five medical assistants who complained about working with that doctor during procedures. The doctor was requiring them before the procedure to sign an affidavit stating the proper things were removed after the surgery was done. Quote, the medical assistants believed the attestations were premature, wrong, and illegal because the abortion surgery had not yet been performed, and they were concerned about the quality and thoroughness of the procedures. That was a quote from the lawsuit. Rodriguez claimed that one medical assistant told her the doctor refused to confirm that he had fully completed an abortion before placing an IUD into a patient. The medical assistant had to call the doctor back to remove the IUD and complete the abortion after an ultrasound check showed that the procedure was not complete, according to court records. The doctor still works for the clinics, according to Planned Parenthood Arizona. According to the lawsuit, another doctor was rude to numerous employees, including to Rodriguez on multiple occasions. Rodriguez claimed that doctor's actions worsened when she complained. Later in September, according to the lawsuit, Rodriguez reported to a supervisor that a manager violated state law by not reporting that a minor with an adult partner was seeking an abortion, according to court records. Rodriguez said she did not get a response from the supervisor. Rodriguez spoke to the same supervisor about her concerns about staff access to a medicine room. According to the lawsuit, Rodriguez did not feel comfortable with the door being left open during work hours. Then at the end of September, Rodriguez received a memo giving her a final warning. The purported deficiencies were about adherence to PPA financial policy and procedure issues, inventory control issues, personnel and supervisory issues, alleged failure to perform daily duties, and alleged inconsistent and inaccurate communications, according to the complaint. Rodriguez told the human resources director that she believed the memo was a form of harassment in response to her complaints, according to the lawsuit. After receiving the final warning, a supervisor claimed she found narcotics inside Rodriguez's desk. Rodriguez claimed the medication was not a narcotic. She said in the lawsuit that it was common practice for staff to store medication that way before transferring it to the clinic's purchasing department for handling and disposal. According to her lawsuit, when Rodriguez realized the medication was missing from her desk, she contacted the supervisor and was told an incident report was not necessary. A day later, she was fired for violating the clinic's controlled substance policy. Planned Parenthood and its clinicians are evaluated by the Arizona Department of Health Services and the U.S. Department of Drug Enforcement Administration. These inspections and visits by government agencies cover and investigate the areas that the former employees' claims were directed at and were not substantiated by any of their evaluations of our staff or facilities, said Taylor Tucker, who is a Planned Parenthood Arizona spokeswoman. Howard said the health and safety of patients are a priority for Planned Parenthood Arizona, and the organization supports the court system in making sure workplaces are safe and fair and follow the law. While we disagree with the verdict and the damages awarded, we will not allow this event to distract from Planned Parenthood's 100% focus on protecting access to health care for those Arizonans who need it most, he said. We will consider next steps with that priority in mind. 
And that was the article from August 19th, the Arizona Republic, reported by Lauren Castle. The headline was, Former Planned Parenthood Arizona Employee Awarded $3 Million Over Wrongful Termination. And as of this recording, we have not yet heard of any appeal of that verdict. Our next article is from the AZ Mirror and reported by Laura Gomez. The headline is Detained Immigrants and Groups Sue ICE and DHS for Inadequate Medical Care and Disability Accommodations. It was reported last week. Immigrants with disabilities and medical and mental health conditions and two California immigrant rights groups have sued the federal government for failing to provide health care and disability accommodations at its 158 immigration detention facilities nationwide in violation of constitutional and statutory requirements. The class action lawsuit was filed in a federal district court in Los Angeles. It claims immigration detention centers, quote, place the mental and physical health of detained people at grave risk, deny them reasonable accommodations, and otherwise subject them to discrimination on the basis of disability. The lawsuit involves 14 immigrants detained at ICE facilities in Alabama, Arizona, California, Colorado, Georgia, and Louisiana. The Inland Coalition for Immigrant Justice and Al Otro Lado are also plaintiffs. Those are two California groups. The lawsuit names ICE and the U.S. Department of Homeland Security leadership as defendants. The immigrants suing have been diagnosed with medical conditions like diabetes, cerebral palsy, chronic pain, hypertension, bipolar disorder, and schizophrenia, according to the complaint. Others also are deaf, hard of hearing, or blind, and require disability accommodations. They claim they have been denied treatment and medication, and some were placed in solitary confinement, which aggravates their mental health. One plaintiff, Ruben Dario Mencias Soto, uses crutches and a wheelchair to move and had those aids taken from him until his lawyer intervened. Another former detainee, Amida Ali, has schizophrenia and was placed in solitary confinement for eight months, exacerbating her condition, the lawsuit claims. Another man, Jose Baca Hernandez, is blind but was not given accommodations and has relied on other detainees to read documents to him. As of December 31st of last year, ICE had 47,486 individuals in its custody, according to the Transactional Records Access Clearinghouse, or TRAC, at Syracuse University. A large majority of the detained immigrants, 63%, have no criminal record, according to that database. About one in five immigrants in detention have been convicted of minor violations like illegal entry into the country, which is a misdemeanor, traffic offenses, and driving under the influence, according to track data. Immigration detention is not meant to be punitive, the lawsuit alleges, but those detained at these facilities face, quote-unquote, brutal conditions and punitive practices. Plaintiffs and the class are routinely denied access to crucial medical and mental health care, refused necessary accommodations for their disabilities, and subjected to near-constant isolation, the complaint states. Viewed in their totality, these brutal conditions and punitive practices evince that conditions in the detention facilities are indistinguishable from, and often worse than, jails and prisons. End of the quote from the complaint. That complaint also asks the court to intervene so that ICE and DHS don't continue to subject immigrants it detains to this unconstitutional and unlawful treatment.
The lawsuit alleges ICE and DHS are aware of the systemic unlawful conditions of confinement are rampant among its detention facilities. Both DHS's own Office of Inspector General and the U.S. Government Accountability Office have repeatedly pointed to problematic procuring procedures and lack of meaningful monitoring and accountability mechanisms for contractors of immigration detention. Defendants have consistently and repeatedly failed to take any effective steps to monitor, oversee, and administer detention facilities. And to ensure that these violations do not recur, the complaint states, defendants have thus condoned or been deliberately indifferent to the conduct that results in these unlawful conditions of confinement. The article goes on to list uh, all of the 14 individual defendants. We'll just read about the one who is being held in Arizona. Sergio Salazar Artaga, who is 25 years old, is detained at the Florence Correctional Center in Arizona. He has cerebral palsy and chronic pain in his back and knees. The pain medication provided has been insufficient, and he has been waiting to receive braces for mobility and for now uses a cane. He has fallen three times since his detention. He did not get a mental health care evaluation until after a month of arriving in Florence. He has been placed on suicide watch twice for self-harming behavior and hallucinations, and he is now diagnosed with anxiety disorder and atypical psychosis. And that article was in AZ Mirror, was reported by Laura Gomez on August 21st. The headline was, Detained Immigrants and Groups Sue ICE and DHS for Inadequate Medical Care, Disability Accommodations. Next, we have a brief article which was first reported on our own website, arizonaslaw.org, and I reported it. It was then subsequently reported elsewhere. The headline, Arizona Grand Jury Indicts Tucson Man for Voting Twice in 2016. Here's the article. Arizona Attorney General Mark Burnovich announced this afternoon that a Tucson man has been charged with quote-unquote illegal voting for casting 2016 election ballots in both Arizona and Nevada. The case against Randy Jumper was brought by the AG's Criminal Fraud Division, and there's not yet any indication that it is connected to news earlier this week that the AG's office has set up an election integrity unit in advance of next year's election. AG spokesperson Ryan Anderson indicates that Jumper's alleged multiple voting was first spotted last year by then-Secretary of State Michelle Reagan's office. Efforts to contact Mr. Jumper or to ascertain whether he is registered to a political party have thus far been unsuccessful. And we can give you a couple of updates It was reported by Joe Ferguson in the Arizona Daily Star that he is registered as an independent. He was registered as a Republican for many years. And we also have an update from Ryan Anderson. He emailed us and let us know that he hasn't actually been booked. And it is not the first action by the Election Integrity Unit. This was already in the queue. Moving forward, as the Election Integrity Unit takes actual form, these types of prosecutions will be handled by that election integrity unit. And there's also already several other election-related matters that are in their pipeline. So that was reported on our own ArizonasLaw.org on August 22nd and updated just now. You're hearing it live. Our next article is from Law 360, Minor Leaguers Notch a Ninth Circuit Win on Cert in MLB Paysuit, reported by Zach Zagger. 
And this was from a couple of weeks ago. Minor league baseball players suing over starvation wages in the farm system scored a home run uh, as the Ninth Circuit upheld a lower court's decision to certify a National Fair Labor Standards Act collective and California class and said that it should have certified classes in Arizona and Florida as well. The three-judge panel ruled two to one that questions about the interplay between the three states' labor laws and concerns over the amount of evidence that the players brought to the table were not enough to strike out their claims, which center on allegations that they are routinely paid far below minimum wage and are denied overtime. It is often said that baseball is America's pastime, the opinion said. In this case, current and former minor league baseball players allege that the American tradition of baseball collides with a tradition far less benign, the exploitation of workers. As is true in all FLSA cases, underlying our decision today is the background principle that because FALSA is a remedial statute, it must be interpreted broadly, the court added, in a line that dealt only with the player's labor claims but echoed its overall approach. The court went on to say, after all, the FULSA does not deal with mere chattels or articles of trade but with the rights of those who toil. It is a great result for minor league players everywhere, said Robert King, who represents the players. We look forward to prosecuting the case to trial. MLB Major League Baseball did not respond to requests for comment. The player's suit was filed in 2014 by Aaron Sen and 44 other minor league players, alleging that the 6,000 or so non-unionized players in the minor league system are paid only $1,100 per month during the five-month regular season and nothing at all for spring training and its fall counterpart, the instructional leagues, both of which is in Arizona, both are in Arizona, at least partly, and both of which last about a month each and are strongly implied to be mandatory. The players say they routinely put in 50 hours of work or more per week during both the regular season and the off-season training, often taking home less than $10,000 per year when all is said and done. The suit seeks various damages and back pay for the years of severe underpayment that the players have allegedly been subjected to. Major League Baseball, which controls the Farm League system and the Fall League, has argued that minor league players are not employees but are seasonal apprentices and therefore not subject to state and federal labor laws. The players originally sought to certify eight classes in eight different states to pursue state labor law claims, as well as the National Labor Standards Act, Collective. But when that proposal was rejected as too unwieldy, the players narrowed their request to the federal plus three classes in California, Arizona, and Florida. California is likely home to the most minor league players of any state, and spring training is conducted for all players in Arizona and Florida. And as mentioned, the Fall League is also in Arizona. U.S. Magistrate Judge Joseph Sparrow ultimately agreed to certify the federal collective and the California class, but said he could not certify the Arizona and Florida classes because it was not clear whether he should apply those states' law or laws or California's law, where the suit was filed. Both sides then promptly appealed that. MLB argued on appeal that no class or collective could be certified because all minor league players are bound by the labor laws of the states that they are from and not where they are playing, making it nearly impossible to sort out who is owed what.
But on Friday, the Ninth Circuit flatly rejected that argument from Major League Baseball, leaning heavily on the California Supreme Court's 2011 decision in Sullivan v. Oracle. That ruling stated that California labor law applied to all work performed within the state's borders, regardless of whether it was performed by residents or non-residents. And with that proposition in mind, the Ninth Circuit said Judge Spiro was clearly right to find that the players could certify a California class that covered all minor league players in the Golden State, even if many of them were residents of other states. Citing Sullivan and California's general approach to choice of law issues, the court said Judge Spiro had made the wrong call when it came to the Arizona and Florida classes, because those classes could easily be certified by simply applying Arizona and Florida law to their respective classes. Forcing Arizona or Florida to allow the application of other states' wage laws in this case would be just as destructive as allowing the application of other states' laws in Sullivan would have been, the opinion stated. Turning to the other major bone of contention, the court also rejected MLB's arguments that the players had not presented enough evidence to back up their class and collective claims. Much of the players' case depended on a survey that measured when players clocked in and out of the ballparks they play at. But MLB said that wasn't enough because it did not actually measure what players were doing while they were there. MLB also said there were significant variations in arrival and departure times across the players. But the Ninth Circuit pointed out that the Arizona and Florida classes only contain minimum wage claims and hinge on allegations that there are long periods where the players are working but not receiving any pay at all. Therefore, as the district court correctly held, liability can be established simply by showing that the class members performed any compensable work and time spent at the ballpark is still work, even if the players spent their time doing things like eating or showering, the opinion said. The court said that while things were more complicated with the California class, which does include claims for unpaid overtime, the players had still presented enough evidence to pursue those claims as a group. Acknowledging some of the problems with the survey referenced by MLB, the court said the players may have been in trouble if that were all they had to demonstrate the hours they claimed to work on a regular basis. But the survey was but one piece of the plaintiff's representative evidence, evidence that also included hundreds of internal team schedules and public game schedules, payroll data, and the testimony of both players and league officials, the opinion stated. Observers of the case had worried that it could have been derailed by the Save America's Pastime Act, which exempted minor league players from the Federal Labor Standards Act and was tucked into last year's $1.3 trillion spending bill by MLB lobbyists. But in briefing presented to the Ninth Circuit, the players said the new statute did not matter because it only applies going forward, and their suit only seeks damages for abuses that occurred in the past. And because that new law only amended the Federal Labor Standards Act, it also has no effect on state labor law claims one way or the other. In a dissent to the opinion this past week, U.S. Circuit Judge Sandra Siegel Akuta largely agreed with MLB's argument that the tangle of state labor laws potentially implicated in the player's suit Doomed, dooms it to failure, criticizing the majority for being too quick to cut through the Gordian knot with a simple rule of its own device, namely, just apply the law of the jurisdiction where the work took place. 
And that's the end of the article by Zach Zagger for Law 360. Minor leaguers notch ninth circuit win on cert and MLB pay suit. And that is of interest to Arizona baseball fans, baseball players, and Arizona legal community as well. Well, let's finish up with this article from a couple weeks ago in the Arizona Daily Star. This is an, an analysis article by Tony Davis for the Arizona Star. The headline is, Shocking Blockbuster Rosemont Mine Ruling Has National Implications, Experts Say. Here's the article. For decades, the U.S. Forest Service has said it can't say no to a mine on its land. Now, the recent federal court ruling overturning approval of the Rosemont Mine on service land near Tucson will make it harder for the Forest Service to say yes. Legal experts say U.S. District Judge James Soto's July 31st ruling in Tucson, if upheld in higher courts, will have national repercussions. They are using words like chaos, shocking, and blockbuster to discuss the ruling's ramifications. The ruling could chill the hard rock mining industry that has lived under a generally favorable legal climate since Congress passed the 1872 mining law to encourage mineral exploration of public lands. Mining industry lawyers say the ruling usurps the role of government agencies in making such decisions, could bring chaos to federal mining reviews, and will add more delays in permitting to an industry already having some of the longest permit times for new mines in the Western world. Environmental law professors say the ruling is well-grounded factually and could end a century-old practice by mining companies of skirting or dodging federal law by dumping mining wastes on federal lands without proper reviews. They say it also exposes what they see as the fallacy of having our public lines public lands mining governed by a law written at a time when picks and shovels were used to pull minerals from the ground. Judge Soto's order is likely the most significant federal court decision on federal mining law in several decades, mining industry lawyers James Allen and Michael Ford of the Phoenix-based law firm Snell & Wilmer wrote in an online article. It will likely be received with shock throughout the hard rock mining industry, they wrote. John Leshy, a former Interior Department solicitor and a retired law professor, and I'll throw in he's actually a, he was actually a professor of mine in law school, called the ruling a blockbuster that could finally lead to reform of the 1872 law, an effort that has repeatedly failed in Congress over the past four decades. In the meantime, the ruling, if upheld, would make opening a big new mine in the United States on public lands very hard, said Leshy. He's now Professor Emeritus at the University of California Hastings College of Law. He formerly was at Arizona State University for many years. Soto overturned the Forest Service's approval of the mine, which would create 500 full-time jobs at high wages and 2,500 construction jobs, but would disturb 3,653 acres of national forest. Rosemont also would disturb and desecrate 33 ancient Native American burial grounds containing or likely containing human remains of ancestors of the Tohono O'odham, Pasquayaki, and the Hopi tribes, the judge wrote, as he ruled on two lawsuits filed by four environmental groups and the other by the three tribes. And, of course, the proposed Rosemont Mine is in southern Arizona. The opponents' lawsuits 
successfully argued that only public lands directly above valuable mineral deposits are covered by the federal 1872 mining law's definition of mining rights. The judge found that the Forest Service had erred in approving Rosemont without determining the validity of the mining claims on 2,447 acres of public land where Hud Bay Minerals, Inc. wants to dump the mine's waste rock and its tailings. To prove validity under the 1872 law, the judge wrote, Hud Bay would have had to show that the land contained valuable mineral deposits, which he said the company had failed to do. Allen, who is an attorney in Snell and Wilmer's Tucson office, said this ruling that says you have to consider the validity of a mining claim in this context, that is brand new. Ordinarily, validity disputes based on discovery of a valuable mineral deposit came up when you have two rival claimants going after the same deposit. Rosemont, a planned open-pit copper mine in the Santa Rita Mountains southeast of Tucson, was ready to start construction on August 1st this past month. Now it faces delays of up to 24 months before the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals can rule on an anticipated appeal of Soto's decision. In the meantime, mining industry lawyer Stuart Boutsier of Albuquerque said the ruling will chill investment in domestic mining on any significant scale and cause mining companies to look at other countries. Industry lawyer Daniel Jensen of Salt Lake City said it will simply provide one more alternative for challenging the agency's actions in court, which is never a quick process. It will slow things down. Judge Soto's ruling effectively holds that the feds cannot say yes to a proposal to dump mine tailings on invalid mining claims, said Mark Squillace, a University of Colorado law professor. Mining claims can only be used to extract the minerals located there, he said. Since dumping tailings on the claims could make it difficult or almost impossible to develop those claims going forward, Rosemont seems to be admitting that the claims do not contain valuable minerals and thus are not valid claims, Squillace said. The ruling will almost certainly force the industry to push Congress to overturn it, said Leshy, who worked as an informal unpaid consultant to the attorneys pressing the Rosemont suit. Otherwise, the Bureau of Land Management and the Forest Service will have the ability to decide whether and how to allow hard rock mining companies to use public lands as dumps, including requiring them to pay the U.S. fair market value for that use, Leshy said. The ruling would treat those companies just like most others who seek to use public lands for profit, and the industry is not used to being treated that way, he added. Industry attorney Allen, one of the few legal experts interviewed who did not take sides on Soto's ruling, was less convinced that it would choke off all new mines. He said companies can always go back to the agencies and try to find ways to make their projects work legally. If the ruling slows projects another two years after Rosemont has taken 12 years to get permitted, how much slower can it get, he asked. But my sense this is Allen's words, is that now with this ruling, industry officials may be more open to some modifications of the 1872 law, if that would give them more certainty about the outcome of future permit issues, he said. In the end, companies do not care what legal regime they are working under as long as there is some degree of certainty. This ruling's most significant feature is that it breaks down the wall between mining law and environmental law by placing a long-standing issue about the validity of mining claims into a new realm. 
The federal approval of a new mine under the National Environmental Policy Act, or NIPA, NEPA, industry attorney Allen said. Typically, mining law deals with property rights and environmental law does not. This case raises the possibility of environmental law being brought to bear on property rights, he said. From now on, every time a company submits a mining plan to the Forest Service or BLM for approval, their plans would be at risk unless they include some kind of a mineral exam, he said. The ruling ignores an agency's right to not challenge or question the validity of an unpatented, unpatented, unpatented mining claim if it chooses, industry attorney Jensen said. The judge seems to believe the agency is required to do that in every case, which is not the law, he said. The agency has discretion to do that any time it wants. It is not compelled to do it. Judge Soto has pretty much usurped the agency's role in this area, he added. If that happened all the time, it would be chaos in the administrative world, Jensen said. The agency has regulations for analyzing the validity of claims, and they do challenge mining claims from time to time. If someone can go to court and convince a judge that a judge alone can undertake some sort of analysis on his or her own, suggesting that record is invalid and claims are invalid, that circumvents the administrative process, said Jensen. Industry attorney Boutier said the part of Soto's opinion dealing with the principles of the 1872 mining law, public lands and multiple use, strikes me as pretty sound. He's clearly thought that through and done research into principles that apply to public lands law, in particular related to the 1872 law. His concerns lie first with his view that it is not clear that Rosemont had the opportunity to put forward evidence as to whether or not there was a valuable mineral deposit under the lands slated for waste disposal. Second, Boutier is concerned that the court's use of NEPA to handle challenges to mining claims is the wrong forum. To me, that's an apples and oranges detour from the purpose of NEPA, which is to evaluate alternatives for a proposed action affecting the human environment. Boutier said. Attorney Jensen's view is what former inter Interior Solicitor Leshy said he expects will be the industry and government's arguments during the inevitable appeal. It is basically saying the government can stick its head in the sand and not look at the obvious, and the court should not intervene to stop it. It's kind of a prosecutorial discretion argument. The government gets to decide when and whether to challenge the validity of mining claims, Leshy said. But, although the government gets a good deal of deference, it cannot act arbitrarily and capriciously, he said, citing a phrase from the judge's ruling. It is arbitrary and capricious for the government to close its eyes to the plain facts in front of it. These mining claims used for tailings piles do not have minerals that can be profitably mined and are therefore invalid, and that means the company does not have a right to use them for that purpose. Law professors Squalace and Jan Latos of the University of Denver praised Judge Soto's ruling as sound. I think Rosemont is going to have a tough time justifying that they are valid claims when the intent is to bury them with waste, said Squalace. He said he was interviewed but not formally consulted by lawyers for mine opponents. The whole purpose of the 1872 mining law was to grant people rights to the minerals if they could be developed, Squalace said. Latos called the ruling a wake-up call to mining companies that they must be sure that they can convince the feds that they have made a mineral discovery. 
I don't know what the facts are. I don't know if the judge had the facts right, but as a matter of law, the judge is completely correct, said Latos. If you don't have that trigger of the valuable mineral discovery, you don't have the right to use that land. And that's the end of the article by Tony Davis, an analysis of the Rosemont Mine ruling in Tucson. Shocking and blockbuster Rosemont Mine ruling has national implications, say the experts. And just today, in fact, just uh, as we were coming in to record this program, there was a new article from Tony Davis. The Army Corps has suspended the permit for the Rosemont Mine based on the court ruling that we just read about. And with that, we reach the end of this installment of AZ Law. Remember to listen or download our program wherever you find your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe as well. And since our primary purpose is to support the important services that are provided by Sun Sounds of Arizona, don't forget to go to their website and donate, sunsounds.org, or you can go to arizonaslaw.org and find the links there. We have several plans to grow and improve this program in the coming months, but hey, your comments and suggestions to make this program better are always welcomed, especially since this is a new program. You can email me at paul.wyke.azlaw at gmail.com, and Wyke is spelled W-E-I-C-H. I'm your volunteer reader, Paul Wyke, thanking you for listening to AZ Law. (laughs) 